Okay, well, this is normally the point in our service where we'd hop into the message. I think that's, I, yeah. I think we're going to hold off on that for a second. Okay, real quick, let's, oh, yeah. let's do right. me a favor real quick. Mountain Road team, Mountain Road family. Uh-huh. To uh, can we can we just real quick welcome in maybe every other oh, campus yeah. right now? Okay, yeah. Aberdeen and Edgewood yep. and Abing Dunn and all those online. Welcome. They're, they're joining it. us maybe a little bit earlier than normal because uh, we have some something we want to share. We think it's pretty exciting. Yeah, pretty important. I think we need uh, some other folks to join us on stage. Actually, Mike, why don't you come up here? Carla, if you're here, Ben, you're gonna come on ben stage here? soon anyway. Oh, here he is. Yeah, let, hey, let's man. just bring him out. Come on out. No, come here. Come here. What's that? Uh, yes, this oh is coming God. out of uh, your time. Okay, you have to preach yeah. shorter now. Come here. Yeah. Come so. Oh, Mike's here too. Carla. Come on up here. Oh uh, you nice, might. Nice and close. Come on. You might know uh, Ben Kacharis, Carla Kacharis, Mike Rittler, chairman of our elders, and uh, this is fun because only a few people in the room and participating right now know what's about to happen, and and I'm one of them. Okay. Uh, so let me clue you in. If you were, uh, or if I were to ask you. What world-changing event happened 25 years ago in December of 1997? If I were to ask you that, and if you said Ben and Carla Kacharis moved their family to Maryland and began their ministry at Mountain, you would be right 25 years ago. So... Uh, we think that's pretty awesome. And... Uh, yes, and we're excited to get to be a part of it. We have had the opportunity as a staff team and with some other special folks to celebrate that and acknowledge that moment in some other places, but we really thought it would be fun to acknowledge that with the whole congregation, and so we kind of are doing that to make it a surprise to you. We are interrupting this ordinary worship service to mark something that is truly extraordinary. And Ben and Carla, you have been a blessing and a gift to this community and to people really that extend beyond. I mean, I'm talking to a camera that goes out into the world and your influence has gone out into the world. And there are a lot of things that, that could be said and things that we've said at other times and things that still can be said about that. I'd like to just maybe summarize with, with two things that we talk about a lot around here, faithfulness and fruitfulness. You have been faithful. You have been a model of faithfulness. You have been faithful to the Lord. You've been faithful to one another. Uh, modeling what a Christian marriage looks like and a Christian family. Uh, you have been faithful to your calling here. And we've been privileged to hear you talk about that. Uh, coming from your heart and what God has done in you to bring you here. You've been faithful to this place and to these people. This is a place that is far away from another place that we know you really love, and you have uh, remained faithful here, and as a result, we are all blessed. And out of that faithfulness, by God's grace, it has been tremendously fruitful. Um, I am a person that has been influenced by your ministry. I can speak for Mike, I can speak for Joe, I can speak for everyone who, who's participating in this service right now to know that your faithfulness and investment in the mission has mattered and made such a difference for us. And uh, we are so grateful and uh, so uh, encouraged by just watching that unfold and by the opportunity to get to share it with you and celebrate 
25 years of ministry. So, a couple things. Uh, number one, it, we have opened up a special way to just communicate some words of affirmation and encouragement to you. There is an email address, 25 years at mountaincc.org. That kind of rings really nice, yeah, doesn't it? Works. Yeah. If uh, we've opened that up to our staff earlier this week, and if you'd like to share any words with Ben and Carla, you can feel free to use that email address. And that'll just be an account dedicated just for that. And we can fill that inbox with um, some of those words. Number two, uh, we have a gift for you. Do you, do you have the gift? I, actually, this is embarrassing. I forgot. I'm right back. Get, get the gift. That will, that will be important. This is, this is going to be, I think this is going to be... Great. Oh, come on. Wow. <laughs> oh, well, this is for you. Uh, yeah. Do I have to? <laughs> oh. Uh. That's, that's enough. Uh, okay, that's not. Oh. That, oh, God. All right. All right, moving on. Oh, dang. Hey, get, get this the. Is, this is Amber's cat. I'll yeah, get, get, the, okay. get the real gift. All right. That wasn't it. That send it back. I hope we kept the receipt on that one. But um, this is the real gift. You can actually open it up right here. No animals in here. No. no. Hey, I I wrapped that myself. That was just, really well done, buddy. That's yeah. Really nice. Just pull it. Just pull it. Yeah. Just come all out of there. It's a table. Okay. Thank so you that. So. Much. so <laughs> I know exactly where this will go. Yeah. Um. That you can, you can keep that. That's symbolic as well. That's not the real thing. Here, here's the thing. Um, Carla knows you've worked with our group's ministry for a long time, and our campus groups were studying in the Gospel of Luke. And what we noticed was how much of Jesus' ministry happens around a table. And about a thousand of these tables were made uh, to just symbolize that. And we know that for you, how meaningful your family table is, as you've gathered family and extended family and friends around a table. We also know a very special place for you is a cabin in Minnesota. And that's actually, there's a new opportunity there, a new place that new you, table. your new family and extended family will gather around. Be a little small. But that place needs a table, and that little table is meant to symbolize a bigger table that we have gotten for you so that when you take your breaks from here and go enjoy your time in Minnesota and you're around the table with your family and you're playing cards and you're playing games and you're eating, you can think of your mountain family and know that we love you and care for you. We are for you. Yep. Please join me in celebrating 25 years of ministry for Ben and Carla. Thank you. We love you guys. <laughs> uh, my. Thank you so much. Mike is going to just voice a, a prayer for you. Uh, that's why I'm here. That is why you're here, Mike. Sorry, I've done a lot of the talking here, but would you pray for them as, as a way? If you want to join, wherever you are, if you want to extend a hand, we do this all the time. Just as a way to join in your prayer, if you want to extend a hand of blessing toward these folks as we pray. All right. Uh, let's pray together. Uh, Father God, uh, what, a, what a time to be here, to be together, to be celebrating 25 years of uh, impact here in Hartford County and, and beyond and throughout this state in this country, this world, Lord, uh, 25 years. Uh, ben and Carla answered the call way before that uh, as they dedicated their lives to service uh, to you, to the kingdom, to uh, 
to introducing people to the great love of Jesus, Lord. And we are blessed here to to have them for the last 25 years having that impact right here uh, through this place and in our midst and with us. And so um, as we celebrate this, we just pray for, for many more years of love and impact and uh, and blessing. Uh, we pray that the table that uh, that will they will gather around with family and friends, Lord, will be a place of uh, just connection and love and blessing. And uh, we just pray for the family, Lord, that you just continue to uh, to bear fruit through the Kacharis family. Uh, we are blessed and we are better because we get to minister and play and be with them. So thank you for bringing them to us and uh, allowing us to just be a part of their circle and part of their part of their lives allowing us to be part of theirs we love you and we praise you it's in the name of our lord and savior jesus that we pray amen amen amen, amen. thank you all it's great thank you you have a job to do i got a job to we're do. gonna let thanks, you brother. get on with that Appreciate but it. uh hey let's roll that video and give them a chance to get ready thanks man yep in a while I get got and I just got got so uh, it's our it's the greatest privilege of our life to, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to serve in a way that is so wonderful and beautiful as a place like mountain it's the just the best thing ever and we we would do it all over again and and uh, uh, we're, we're looking forward to what what's coming next so thank you all for your uh, your thoughtfulness and kindness and uh, I've got a job to do and I'm excited to do it and I'm gonna make up for lost time are you guys ready buckle up Hey, we want to say welcome. First of all, we'd like to show hospitality to everyone who's at all of our campuses because we are one church that meets in lots of locations. So let's take a moment and show some hospitality and just say welcome, everybody, okay? Just be warm and welcoming. We're in a series of messages. Who knows what it's called? Behind the scenes, exactly. It's a reminder that when you look at Christmas, very often we have a little stereotypical picture in our head. It's that Mary and Joseph scene in the manger, the nativity set. That's often about as far as some people's mind goes. That's better than Santa and Rudolph, but it's not far enough because the Bible, some of the best stuff that we learn about the importance of what Christmas means, you got to go behind the scenes to get there. And it turns out the Bible really wants to do that. So each week we've been kind of like taking a little look behind the scenes to fill in the picture a little bit, right? So week one, who knows where we, met, where we started? We started in the Gospel of... John, to begin with, and John said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A reminder that behind the scenes, Jesus isn't a little baby only. Jesus is the God of creation who brings light and life. Jesus is the God of incarnation who puts his tent up in our backyard and who means that we're never really alone. Last week, we went to the Gospel of Matthew, and Matthew took us through the family graveyard like the ancestral tree of Jesus, and we learned that he's got some crazy messed up people in his family. It's not just a bunch of perfect saints, but they're sinners and shame and secrets and all kinds of stains in the family of Jesus, and if 
God could work through a family like that, just imagine what he could do in yours. Because God can work through anybody, and this, what Jesus came for, is for everyone. Today we want to take a different look. I want to get behind the scenes again. I just want to use your imagination with me for a second. Well, imagine we're looking at that Christmas scene, right? The one you walk in, but you're really in Bethlehem. You're there, and you, you walk into this house, this ancient house, you know, and, and you, you smell, you know, animals and maybe some dung or feed, and, and, and you, you see there's Mary, and she's sitting there with a baby on her lap, and Joseph is there, and the whole scene is right before you. It's that first Christmas. But then you notice something like, almost like a dream. It's like on a stage, and then there's all these doors behind this little scene, like several doors. And as you go closer, you see there's labels on them, and one of them, you notice, has the name Isaiah on it, and it's got a doorknob on it, just glistening and almost begging you to turn that doorknob and open it up. Right there as you get close, it says right above the door, Isaiah, right behind the manger scene. And you turn that knob, and you swing that door open, expecting maybe to find an old closet with some old stuff that doesn't get used anymore, or maybe just a tiny little room where, you know, off they keep a broom or something like that off stage. But instead, what you discover when you throw that door open is that it opens into this vast, huge, thousands of square feet room with beautiful art and vaulted ceilings and so much going on and it just takes your breath away. And you realize this room of Isaiah is this majestic, huge place. That's what it's like to go behind the scenes with the Bible sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes you just open one little door and it like, whoa, whoa, I never really realized. And it opens up a whole new door of understanding and beauty. And that's what it's like to open the door of Isaiah. Because what you discover is that it's not just an old book or a little tiny storage closet of the Bible where it keeps stuff that nobody uses anymore, but rather it's going to take us behind the scenes and show us some things so wonderful and amazing and breathtaking about God that you're like, wow, I can't believe I never thought about this. And when we do that, particularly with reference to Christmas, what it does is it just, I really hope what happens in the next few minutes is as we take a look through that door, it'll help you want to know Jesus more deeply. It'll help you appreciate him more fully. It'll, it'll make you want to love him more deeply, maybe. I hope so. Would you like to, would you like to open that door? Would you like to go in a little bit? Anybody with me? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. It is a massive room. When, I, when Carla and I were in Spain visiting our daughter last summer, we went to this museum, a big fancy one. I can't remember the name, but there was way too much to see. And I'm like stopping at the first painting. I'm there for like 20 minutes staring at it, taking pictures, which I got in trouble for. And then eventually Carla's like, uh, there's like 9,000 rooms here. We got to go. And so we started moving a little quickly. So that's a little how it is in Isaiah. It's a little overwhelming, but here's the thing. Let's use our time as efficiently as possible. We could just look at one painting the whole time, or we could just see as many as we can. And that's what we're going to try to do. You with me? Let's open the door. Let's go on in. Let's set a little uh, context for what's happening, first of all, with Isaiah. Isaiah lived 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years. We know that. It was the year 740 B.C. 
precisely because that's what he tells us by his own accounting. He says he got his calling and his vision in the year that Uzziah died. We know all about Uzziah and who he was. Here's what was going on. Israel had enjoyed a golden age. They were flourishing and had profited from the expansion of military conquest and political stability and all the prosperity that goes with it. But now all of that was trailing off and they were coasting and their great king Uzziah, who was the mastermind behind it all, died in office and everybody was scared out of their mind because another guy named Tiglath-Pileser III, who was a great Assyrian king, was on the march and he was wiping out everything and everybody in his path. He had already overtaken the Babylonians. He had uh, worked on some of the Assyrians, and now there was nothing really between him and Israel, and everybody knew he was coming straight at Judah. So the international scene is completely in turmoil, a lot of concern in the air globally. In internally, things were a bit of a mess. The rich were getting richer, the poor were getting poorer. There was a lot of injustice going on. There was deep divides between people, a lot of animosity between this group and that group, violence in the streets, a lot of injustice in the streets. And religiously, the people were still saying, oh, we remember God and we love him, but they didn't live that way at all. And they went to church on Sunday, so to speak, but it really didn't even cover the rot that was going on inside of them. Does any of this sound a little bit familiar? There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of uncertainty. And in the middle of that kind of thing, when you're going through something like that, when you're feeling a kind of turbulence, like when you know you're in a time that's unstable and dangerous and scary and there's confusion and animosity and threats all around and injustice and stuff that makes you angry and all that's going on, and it looks like things are barely holding together in your life, in our nation, in the country, in the world, in your own family, that's when God sends a message. It's always when God speaks. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, hear, O heavens. He's calling everyone to listen, not just a few people, not just Isaiah, everyone. Listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. What's going to happen for the next 66 chapters is we're going to get a huge vision from God for people who really need it. People like them and people like us. And, the, and the, the Lord has spoken. It's almost like the creation account, right, in Genesis, where it's like this big swirling mass of nothingness, and there's all this chaos, and then God says, let there be light, and order and beauty comes out of it, and this is what's happening here in Isaiah. The world is a mess, and everything's upside down, and God says, I got something I got, I got you to hear. God's people are about to hear God say in so many words, don't you panic, I'm still God, and I'm still on the throne, I know what I'm doing, and I'm in control of history, not Tig Plath-Pileser III. Don't you forget what I've promised. And he paints this incredible picture of the power and the majesty and the plan of God. And it's a big macro vision and culminates with God making all things new. Like everything. Like the whole earth even. And there's tons of powerful images. Which is why this prophetic work, it's a long one in your Bible, it's quoted more times than any other prophet in your New Testament, 66 times to be exact. But the most important thing about Isaiah might be that it points us with a laser beam, boom, right in the chest of that man from Nazareth, which started out as that baby in the manger. When Jesus began his uh, public ministry, the first thing he does is he goes to a synagogue one day, and they hand him, they say, you're kind of an upcoming rabbi, they hand him a scroll, happens to be from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. Jesus opens it, and he reads the first two verses. 
They had heard those verses a hundred times. It was a description of the Messiah, the one of God, the son of David, who would come one day and save them all, put everything together and do all this amazing stuff. And Jesus read those words. It says, it's Luke 4, 4 verse 18. He says, the, the prophet who is going to say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. This is a prophetic word 700 years earlier that he's quoting. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Jesus stopped reading, and then, in verse 20, it says this. He rolled up his scroll, and he handed it back to the attendant, and everybody's like, okay, you're going to have a little sermon on this today? And instead, Jesus looked at them, and he said, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. That Messiah you've been waiting for for 700 years you're looking at him. It's a pretty bold thing to say, isn't it? But we begin to see all of a sudden Isaiah and the Christmas story are connected like this. And we're going to see as we move around the room of Isaiah now that pretty much every painting in the place points to Jesus. They had clung to those words in hope. Someday God's going to send someone who's going to fix this mess and help me. Jesus is like, I'm here, let's roll. All right. You roam around behind the scenes in Isaiah, you might come over here. Let's go over here a little bit to uh, Isaiah chapter 7. What's happening here is actually a judgment statement that's happening to a king named Ahaz. But in the middle of that statement, Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The what? Virgin will conceive and give birth to a... And what will they call him? Emmanuel. Does any of that sound familiar? <laughs> I bet it looks familiar in meticulous detail, in fact, right? 700 years. Don't lose that fact. Matthew doesn't want us to miss the connection. So he says, Matthew, he says in the book of Matthew, you know, before Mary and Joseph had even come together, Mary got pregnant through the Holy Spirit because she was a virgin. And after a while, the angel said she will give birth to a son. He uses the exact words to make sure we don't miss it. And everyone would have said, wow, this sounds familiar. In fact, you look over at Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, the Christmas story. Here it is. All this took place. Why? To fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet. What prophet? Isaiah. Everything about Christmas is happening to fulfill what Isaiah was talking about. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So there we go. It's not only a prophetic pointer, it's just this amazing reminder of who Jesus is. Let's, uh, let's move around. Uh, later, when the people of God have walked away from God, they are walking in darkness. Their lives are a mess. They're off the rails. And the scriptures say in, in Isaiah chapter 8 that they're mad. They're angry and outraged at God, at the government, at each other, and everything's all. It's just a big time of distress and darkness and fearful gloom. Another description of what some people are experiencing even today. But it says in chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, God says in the middle of that mess, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, now follow me here, there's a lot of detail. He humbled the land of, what is it? Zebulun and, every, and the land of Naphtali. Say Naphtali. Remember that. But in the future he will honor what? 
Galilee of the nations, way down by the way of the sea, down by the sea, beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. Great promise of God is going to fulfill one day, somehow, some way through someone. Well, look at how Jesus began his ministry. He gets baptized, he goes out in the wilderness, and he's tempted, and he succeeds in that. And then John the Baptist gets thrown in prison, and look at the very first thing he does, Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 and following. Jesus heard that John had been put in prison. This is 700 years after what we just read. And it says, Jesus withdrew to where? Galilee. Boom, bam, right there, prophecy fulfilled. Leaving Nazareth, he went up and lived in Capernaum, which, by the way, is in the lake area down by the sea. Boom, prophecy fulfilled right there. In the area of Zebulun, boom, Naphtali, boom. You see all these prophecies getting knocked out one by one? To fulfill what was said to the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes it in verse 15. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, way by the sea, Jordan, Galilee. The people who are living in darkness have seen a great light. And then Jesus would go on to say himself in John chapter 8. Hey, I know you've been waiting on that great light for 700 years. And Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light. It's me. You don't have to walk in darkness anymore. He's saying I'm that light. I'm the fulfillment of those prophetic promises from centuries ago. We could stay and look at that for a long time because there's more I'd want to say about the light and darkness in your own life. But let's go over here and look at Isaiah chapter 10 for a second. Because Isaiah 10 describes another time of loss and forsakenness where God's people, they appear to be like the promise of God appears to be like a, a great tree that was once mighty and strong and fruitful that has now been hacked down with an axe and is nothing but a dead stump in front of them. They were waiting on the Savior from the family of David, from a son of Jesse, right? Who would come and save them. But now that tree, that promised son of David tree has been hacked down and their hopes are dashed. I think we all know what it's like to be in a place where your hopes are dashed and you're, you feel like whatever once was a possibility is no longer a possibility and whether it's a marriage or a, an outlook or a health matter, you just feel like what was there is gone. It's just a dead stump with no life in it. We all know what that's like. We've all got stumps in our life that whatever that place is where hope is gone right now. Where hope is, you look at it and there's nothing there. Someone has died, something has happened. So we've all got these stumps. And God's people back then saw their future as a massive dead stump, a painful reminder of why they used to have hope because the promise was that a Messiah would come from the family of Jesse, and now it wasn't going to happen, or so they thought. And again, in that kind of a moment, God sends a message. And this one comes through Isaiah again, and it's a pretty good encouragement for people back then and today. Look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. As they're looking at that old dead stump, God says, T keep looking at it because one day you're going to see a shoot will come up from that stump. That's the stump of Jesse. And from his roots, you may look dead on top, but the roots are still alive and a branch is going to come out and bear fruit. And that tree is going to be as healthy and strong as it needs to be to hold all of the justice of the nations. 
God had not abandoned his promise. He would raise up a son of David who would be a true king, shepherd of the people. And because of this prophecy, you see, when Jesus is going to be born, the New Testament writers go out of their way, bend over backwards to make sure that we understand that Jesus was the son of David. He was that fruit from the stump of Jesse. This is why, for example, Matthew last week when he shows the genealogy, the whole point of the genealogy is to say Jesus is the son of David. And why Luke, when he begins, he tells that whole part about, remember there was a census and David and Joseph had to take his family to his hometown. Of course, you remember what his hometown was. It was Bethlehem, which is otherwise known as what? The city of David because, you know, he's really in the family of David because that stump of Jesse from Isaiah has to be fulfilled if Jesus is who he said he was. You see in this? It's like looking at a piece of art and you realize there's more there than you thought. That's how I feel about when I move around the room of Isaiah. You could go over to chapter 40. Let's, let's go over to Isaiah 40 for a minute. Try to keep up. We don't have that much time in this museum here. We've got to go. Let's go over to Isaiah 40. Prophet is trying to comfort the people. And God says there's a special messenger that's going to come one day to really prepare things for God's big move. Here's what he says. He describes this precursor messenger this way. He says... You're going to hear a voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Any of that sound familiar? Does anything sound remotely familiar about that? What happened when John the Baptist showed up? And they said, hey, who are you exactly? Are you a prophet? Are you Elijah? What's your name? What, what, who are you? What, how, did Jesus, how did John the Baptist answer that question? John 1.23. He replied, in the words of Isaiah the prophet is how he replied. He said, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Could not make it any clearer that Jesus, the one coming after me, is the one that you're really waiting on. The New Testament writers understood Jesus to be the fulfillment of the prophetic word as the Messiah, the Son of God. No place makes that more clear than the end of the book. We don't have time to go to every room in this big, expansive Isaiah place. But I will take you just for a while to the end where instead of just picturing God as the mighty, rescuing Savior, conquering God, Isaiah shows us a big shocker. It really surprises a lot of people today still. A lot of people don't even accept it. But he says... This Messiah that's going to save the world isn't just a conquering muscle job. He's a suffering servant, and through his suffering, he's going to rescue us all. You'll see. It's a really strange turn, especially when you consider that the kinds of things we're about to read were written 700 years before Jesus had happened to him what happened to him. Kirk Bolin and I were talking the other day. You know, it's like when you watch a really good series that's really well written on Netflix or, you know, West Wing or something that's so, so it's just clever writing and just beautiful. And you're in like season three or season whatever. And you realize, oh my goodness, did the writers have this in mind? This crazy plot twist happens. And you're like, did the writers, were they thinking of this the whole time or are they making this up as they go along? You, know, you ever wonder that? Well, what happens here? In Isaiah is this crazy plot twist about who the Savior of the world is going to be. And you might think, God, is that, 
is that what is not going to be the military king? It's going to be this humble but strong, compassionate, suffering servant? Did God know that was going to happen? And the answer is in Scripture, yep. Before the foundations of the world, God knew because we have proof. Because seven centuries before it actually happened, through the prophet Isaiah, it reveals in plain sight, in intricate detail, eerie accuracy what happened with Jesus. The Savior is going to come, and he's not going to be this Greek god, this strong-armed guy who's going to kick butt on the Romans. It's going to be Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to hover in 53 for a minute. He says, you know what? This this one who comes, he won't have any beauty about him or majesty. It's not what's going to draw you to him is that he's a magazine cover. He's some Greek god. No, no, no. In fact, it says he'll be despised and rejected. What? No, no, no. We love our kings. We love our Messiah. No, he's gonna, this one, not this one. Remember, that's what John said in chapter 1. His own people didn't even receive him. He was despised and rejected. That's exactly what happened to Jesus. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of, listen, um, he'll be a man of suffering. 700 years before Jesus, he'll be familiar with pain. Not like, they've never heard of a God like this who knew pain. And Jesus, in fact, was not immune to suffering. He was a man of sorrows, familiar with pain. Hebrews 4 says it this way. It's not like he's some high priest who's, who's immune to us, unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, he's, he knows. He's experienced everything we have because he's fully human and fully God. Jesus wept over the grave of Lazarus. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. He wept in the garden. He cried out on the cross. He, he, his family didn't understand him. He had the emotional pain of seeing his closest friends deny him, betray him, and people misunderstand him. And then everyone forsook him and fled as he endured the physical pain of, of being tortured, a horrible criminal's death on a cross. This sounds to me like he was a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Not what anyone expected, unless, unless you actually listen to Isaiah, who said this is exactly who he would be. Can I show you some more parallels here in Isaiah 53? You've got to open your Bible to Isaiah 53 sometime and just hover there. You're going to notice so many details and parallels, promises, prophecies, and pointers. Verse 4 says... Surely this one, he will take up our pain and you'll say, oh, he bore our suffering. He took up our pain and bore our suffering. This was a new concept for any of them to consider. But it describes perfectly what Jesus did and why. In Jesus' own life, in Luke 18, one time he took the 12 and he says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go up to Jerusalem, guys. And uh, everything that's written by the prophets about the Son of Man is going to be fulfilled. Everything that Isaiah said is going to be fulfilled. Well, like what things, Jesus? And he says in verse 32, well, I'm going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. And they're going to pay attention to the words. They're going to mock. Remember, remember that word. They're going to insult. Remember that word. They're going to spit. Remember that word. They're going to flog. Remember that word. And they're going to kill. Jesus said that's exactly what's going to happen. Why did he say that? Because that's what Isaiah said. They didn't understand it, but eventually they would when they looked back on it all. Was Jesus flogged? Not every criminal was. Matthew 27, he released Barabbas to them, and then 
he had Jesus what flogged? Bam. Painful prophecy fulfilled. Matthew 27 describes, in verse 30, 28 and following, describes some of the painful final hours of Jesus. It says, they stripped him and put on a scarlet robe, and then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. Why would they do that? Well, to mock him. Bam. Prophecy fulfilled. They put a staff in his right hand so they could kneel down in front of him and mock him some more. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. Why would they do that? To insult him. Bam. Prophecy fulfilled. They spit on him. Check. There's another one. Minute detail. And they struck him on the head again and again. Boom. There's another one. And after they had struck him, they took off his robe and they put his own clothes on him and they led him away to what? Crucify him. Exact detail. One day after Jesus was moving around, he's doing all these miracles. He, was, he healed a bunch of lepers, and then he healed Peter's mother-in-law, and they started bringing demon-possessed people and all kinds of everyone. They were all messed up, and Jesus just kept healing them and healing them. And, and Matthew doesn't want us to miss the reason Jesus did it. Look at what he says, Matthew 8. This was to fulfill, verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities, and he bore our diseases. He quotes the verse we're just talking about. Could it be any clearer that God, before the foundations of the world, had planned for Jesus to come and to die exactly as he did. He gets eerily even more specific. Look at verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. Was Jesus pierced? In fact, he was literally with a spear. Did his punishment bring us peace? That's what the New Testament teaches. First Peter 2, Jesus, Peter says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. There it is in the New Testament. It's exactly, even more detail. Jesus was pierced not for his own sins. He was perfect and sinless, but for ours because a sacrifice was needed to forgive sins. This is basic gospel, you guys. Stay with me. This is getting better here. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, For I passed on to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. According to what Scriptures? Isaiah. It's the most basic part of the gospel. By his wounds we are saved. Romans 4. He was given over because of our transgressions and was raised for our sake. He was justified. Hebrews 9. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting on him. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel right here in the Old Testament from Isaiah 700 years before the time of Jesus. It's good news. Foretold from centuries, prophesied for 700 years, lived out by Jesus 2,000 years ago and available to every single person today. Why do you need this? Why do we need It's more than a curiosity. Oh, that's interesting prophecy. No. Look at the next verse, verse 6. Why? Because we all like sheep have gone astray. That's why. We're all sinners. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid upon that one the iniquity of us all so we could live. 700 years later, Peter would say in 1 Peter 2, you all were like sheep going astray. But now you've turned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls, and that's, that's your only hope. 
And it's all there in Isaiah to begin with. Can you handle one or two more? It's a big museum. Some of you are like, let's get to the car. Uh, it's okay. You'll only be here once. You got to take it in. Verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Is that what happened? <laughs> only exactly what happened. He was before the Sanhedrin. They're hurling all these false accusations. Oh, this and that. You're going to tear down. He said this. He's going to tear down. He's going to do all this stuff. Aren't you going to say anything, Jesus? Mark 14. But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. He went before Pilate, the chief priest. Same thing. Don't you hear everything they're saying? Aren't you going to call a lawyer? Aren't you going to say something? Matthew 27. Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the government. He was amazed. Apparently he hadn't read Isaiah. Because if he had, he would have known. That's exactly what Isaiah said Jesus would do. Is that the moment will come, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, he will not open his mouth. Jesus, in full obedience of everything that was required of him, did exactly so. And it's how things played out. I'll leave you with verse 12. This Messiah who comes one day will pour out his life and he will be numbered among the transgressors. He'll be poured out. Jesus says, I've got this blood of the covenant. It's poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Was Jesus numbered among the transgressors? Matthew says he was hanged on a cross with a sinner on one side and a sinner on the other side, right there numbered among the transgressors. Every detail, my friends. It's just... It's too, it's too um, amazing to be coincidence, isn't it? Isaiah 53, 12 says, He bore the sin of many and he made intercession for the transgressors. What does that mean? It's saying 700 years before the time of Jesus, there would be a Savior one day who would intercede for the, intercede means pray, and transgressors means sinners. And Jesus went to the cross, and what does he do? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He intercedes for the transgressors. And the New Testament says it didn't just happen then. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, guess what Jesus is doing right now? Guess what he's doing? Romans 8, 34. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You've got someone praying for you right now, and his name is Jesus, who's talking to the Father. He's in his ear. That's what he does. And I think you get the point by now. There's a theme to this vast room called Isaiah about the, the son of David who would come, that God would send this Messiah who would save everything, and the scores of prophetic promises just show us this remarkable detail and it points us in one direction to the person who first appeared in a manger scene. You go behind the scenes and you see so much more. He's not just a little baby. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a moral guide. He's not just a martyr who gave his life for a good cause. Well, how does Isaiah describe him? Chapter 9, verse 6. You know what he is? He's a child that will be born. A son will be given. And you know what they'll call him? Read it with me, will you? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government, there will be no end. 
Friend, I just thought it might be important for us before we leave this to come out of the lofty sort of interesting, you know, where you're studying um, the details of the prophecies and all and just and remember who this is about. I suspect that some listening to me don't have a relationship with Jesus. You maybe know about him. And I'm just praying that even in this moment, the Holy Spirit would convict your soul and you would realize that you need exactly what we've been talking about today. You need that message from God that is good news that one has come for you. And Jesus has come for you. But not if you don't receive him. And I think some of you have declared yourself Christians, but you're not living it much. And I would pray that if you've lost sight of the wonderful, powerful, mighty, everlasting God, Jesus, that you would maybe see him. Let's put those words back up there. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. Let's put those words back up there. Can I just say, don't you forget that Jesus is a mighty God and that there is no obstacle in your life, no barrier that's too big, no wall that's insurmountable, no problem that's unfixable, that the one who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine can't handle. He's a mighty God. How are you praying these days? Pray to a mighty God. And he is, he is everlasting Father, which is a reminder that Jesus is connected to the Father, and they are one. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father, and that word reminds us how he's a protector and a provider. What do you need that you can't provide for yourself? that Jesus can, because he's your everlasting father. How are you praying these days? Pray like you have an everlasting father who is also mighty God. And the peace that we need the most, you cannot find on Amazon. You can't find it on Netflix, and you can't find it anywhere except through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. And we all need counseling. And what if I told you there was a counselor who had all the resources in the world and all the wisdom in the world, knows your story and how to fix it, how to help you, and you'd say, well, I don't know, it might not be in my plan, I can't afford it, or I don't have time. And I'd say, what if I told you it was free? Maybe you'd want to spend time with a counselor who's wonderful, supernatural, and wise. His name is Jesus. Isaiah shows us a wonderful Messiah, and he shows us at the same time a prince of peace who comes beside you, pulls up a chair, counselors to someone you talk to and listen to, who happens to also be mighty God and everlasting Father. I pray that you know that, Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your word, which is amazing and marvelous, and it's just remarkable the way that through Isaiah you prepare the way for Jesus in such intricate detail that we can't help but see he really is the one that you had planned to send. But none of that matters, Lord, if we don't receive him as our own wonderful counselor, as our own mighty God, and as our own everlasting Father and the, the one who can bring peace to us. So we pray for, for those who 
who need him most, that we would open our hearts and receive him even this day. Through the Son of God, Jesus, we pray. Amen.